you might not want to face them, but you have to. You're listening to the Mandatory Challengers with Corey Erdman and Morgan Campbell. All right, Morgan, we are both back and we are both in better health. The, <laughs> the common cold took us both out last week. And, you know, it's weird. I was sitting at home with the common cold and I was watching television and there was like a commercial on for cold medication. And like the, the theory of this commercial, uh, the dialogue was something like, uh, you know, we've evolved as a species, uh, you know, but people back in the day used to fight through colds and go hunting and whatnot. And I'm like, people used to actually die from the common cold. Yeah. It's, it's the opposite. Yes. And, and first of all, yes, like colds and flus did in fact kill people back in the day. And part of the reason why human beings have overrun this planet is because we've mastered, uh, sheltering ourselves from the environment. And now we can nurse ourselves through these things and live to reproduce instead of dying at, 14 because you caught influenza or something. And the other thing is, these cold and flu viruses, they evolve much more quickly than human beings do. This is why you need new flu vaccines every year, because like from fall until spring, you'll get different mutations of this flu virus. Like These cold viruses are not to be trifled with. And the fact that like none of these cold meds, all they do is control the symptoms so that you can sleep. And then pass this thing naturally. This is what a what a what an ahistorical non scientific uh, commercial that was. But it's no, it's, it's insane. Oh, and, it, and it goes to uh, our our boy Bomani Jones was tweeting at someone. I forget which football player it was that was questionable due to flu like symptoms. Yes, and as he pointed out, like. What what do you do when you have the flu? Not just a, not just a cold, but even with a cold. What do you do when you have the flu? You stay home. Nothing. You, you stay home, <laughs> and as you pointed out, you take these medications that are just meant to make your ass pass out so that you don't have to be conscious and dealing with these things because they're terrible. Yeah. You don't go out and play a damn football game. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Not to mention the fact, too, that, uh, and this is why you should also stay away from WebMD. Because you get flu-like symptoms, and if you search WebMD like for flu-like symptoms, all the worst things that could happen to you in the world medically start with flu-like symptoms. So, <laughs> <laughs> might as well. Chances are you don't have these things because we're again most of us live to tell the tale because it's not 1742 and we're not dying of flu viruses. But it did lay a lot of people low last week. Well, uh, speaking of uh, being forced into a slumber, or uh, put another way, put to sleep, uh, our man Erickson Lubin man. Had, a pre- had a pretty rough outing at the Barclays Center over the weekend, and I know that wasn't the main event. The main event was uh, Arislani Lara and Terrell Gaucher, but that fight went exactly as we thought it would go, with uh, Gaucher not winning one second of that fight. So, for all intents and purposes... The fight that everyone was tuning in for was Jermel Charlo and uh, and Erickson Lubin. They yes. talked people into the arena. It seemed like it was going to be as close to a 50-50 fight uh, as one could possibly make these days in boxing. These were two young fighters, two guys that are still very much uh, on the ascent in their careers. A fight that didn't really have to happen. No. And it ended in like a minute and pretty damn conclusively. Yeah, and again, on Instagram the next morning, um, 
on Instagram the next morning, I saw a video from one of Lubin's friends um, who had been in Lubin's dressing room live. Um, and looking back like the next day, it felt even worse because these guys are in the locker room and they're hyping them up. They're saying, and the new world champ, et cetera, et cetera. And then the fight ended the way it did. Um, and this is the thing about these fights, because I'm sure there's going to be someone who comes out and says, uh, Lubin had no, had no business in that fight at that young of an age. You rushed him into this title fight before he was ready. But again, um, one, if he wins that fight, you're not saying that. But two, and this is the point I was making, and we'll talk, because we're going to talk before we get off the, the this podcast about a journalism class I was talking to today because they had boxing questions and career questions. But no matter what you do, there's always a guy who's there to tell you you should have done the opposite. So on the one hand, we want 50-50 fights with um, young, undefeated, aggressive fighters who aren't scared to take a risk. And then when someone takes that risk, because it's a risk, that's why it's a risk. We keep saying, hey, fighters, take risks. Don't protect yourselves. Fight these old bums. Go take a risk. Go fight another young, undefeated guy. And then when it happens, someone has to lose. And when the guy loses, we say, oh, well, that was a mistake. You shouldn't have taken the risk. Yeah, but if you fought another bum, we'd be criticizing him for that. Uh, Yeah, of course. And and in this case, I mean, first-round knockouts are... Sometimes they mean nothing. Sometimes they just happen. They happen so infrequently at a high level that they're almost not indicative of yes. how competitive or not competitive that matchup was or how good the matchup was, uh, more appropriately. And, and and I don't think that this meant that this fight was a mismatch or it was a terrible idea for Lubin to take it. Uh, it meant that he got caught with uh, a, a vicious shot at a really gross angle yes. with his head turned and, you know, you're not supposed to react in any way other than the way that Lubin reacted. I mean, you know, had he just taken that shot straight on, would he have stood up to it? I mean, maybe. I mean, he probably wouldn't have been stiffened in the same way that he was. I, I think that it was kind of a, a freak circumstance, which isn't to take anything away from Charlo and how hard he and his brother hit. But, I, I mean, if if Lubin doesn't duck down and take that shot like that, maybe the fight goes another a couple rounds, maybe it goes the distance and we don't have this conversation at all. Yeah. And yeah, to your point, and I don't, I don't, I don't want to sound like, um, mid to mid, mid nineties to early two thousands, George Foreman on HBO commentary. Who's, uh, main observation for every fight is that one of the guys looked cold. One of the guys doesn't yeah. look like he has a, he's broken a sweat yet. So one of these guys is susceptible for to a first round knockdown. But George George in that era was what so the the perspiration of the fighters was to George Foreman what uh, previous head clashes and cuts are to Teddy Atlas on yes. commentary these days. Yes, so I, I don't want to be that guy. But to your point. Um, it, and this is a long way, too, from calling this, like, a flash knockout or a lucky knockout. Because there are no lucky punches, right? Because you throw every punch with intent to land. Um, yeah, but if... Suppose you... Suppose that punch doesn't land quite as flush. And Lubin is able to get through that first sequence. Yeah, we still don't know how that fight would 
unfold. Um, so this is this is one of these situations where the record reads first round KO, and it was a clean, definitive KO, obviously. But if they said, "Hey, we're going to make a rematch of these two fighters," I would watch it because there's absolutely no guarantee that it turns out this way again. Sure, and and it's it was almost set up for a rematch. Not saying it's going to happen, but with Corey, these are these are all set ups for rematches, Corey. That's why you you sheep don't understand. <laughs> all the stuff is fixed because it's set up for a rematch, buddy. It's a setup. <laughs> Al Heyman personally threw that chair in the ring. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you tell me what happened there? See, I still don't know what happened, but the 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 assumption I have is that someone from Lubin's team or someone affiliated with Lubin threw a chair at Jamal Charlo. And then Jamal got upset, and that's why he was in the ring afterwards, and, and why Jim Gray was talking to him and, and whatever else, and set off, you know, yet another kind of antagonistic uh, post-fight Charlo interview that has people saying that, oh, you know, the Charlos have bad attitudes. I mean, you know, people are... People boo them when they knock guys out in spectacular fashion. They boo them when they're angry when chairs get thrown at them. I don't know what else the Charlos are supposed to do. I love the Charlos. Hold he on. The Charlos are the best. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, folks are mad at the Charlos for being mad that somebody threw a chair at one of the Charlos? That's right. Why? This is... Maybe... The Charlos are like the Yasiel Puig of... Of boxing. Yes. Where, remember um, Yasiel Puig's rookie year, and the guy, he's playing for Arizona, and he hit Yasiel Puig in the face with a fastball. And so naturally, Yasiel Puig gets up and he wants to kick the guy's ass. And he tries to kick the guy's ass, but too many people get in between. Cool. And then the next day, we got to read these columns from Ken Rosenthal and these other guys talking about Yasiel Puig's character issues that go all the way back to his time in Cuba. And I'm like, wait a minute. Yasiel Puig just got hit in the face with a fastball. First of all, be glad he didn't die, because that's actually how you should react to getting hit in the face with a fastball. You should die. Yeah, that's by dying. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's that's a deadly weapon. That's attempted murder. Yes. Yasiel Puig gets up from a deadly re- deadly assault, and is naturally quite upset as any of the rest of us would be, and yet somehow we're mad about this. So the Charlo twins are walking to the ring. Okay, cool. Maybe you don't like the Charlo twins, but. Why are you angrier at the guy for being angry over having the chair thrown at him than you are over the fact that somebody threw a chair at one of the Charlos? I, I, I don't understand. I mean, to be honest, I mean, I, I mean, I'm sure it just boils down to, you know, it, you know, and this is a very quick leap, but I'm sure a lot of it just boils down to a white audience not liking the Charlos and whatever. But the Charlos, I mean, in terms of what you would want out of a fighter, I mean, they're they're exciting, they're they're stylish, you know, they have cool trunks, they yes. design their own T-shirts, you know, they they do all of these things that other fighters don't do well. They present themselves really well, and you know, they have a, a, a they have a bit of an attitude and a flamboyance about them. 
I don't understand why you wouldn't like the Charlos, to be quite honest. They're not boring. They, they have nothing that would normally piss off a boxing fan uh, outside of being black, I guess. But and, and uh, so I really don't know where else to point when trying to pinpoint why people don't like them. Yeah, and much like with Yasiel Puig, because these, these storylines are unfolding now at the same time, and Yasiel Puig is flipping his bat after singles and doubles. <laughs> Yasiel Puig is getting on base. Yasiel Puig is scoring. I love Yasiel Puig, if you guys can't yep. tell. Um, and I was tweeting the other day that disliking Yasiel Puig is counterproductive. It doesn't make any sense. There's no reason to dislike Yasiel Puig. Um, unless you are just some old crank who doesn't understand that you're allowed to enjoy your job. And if Yasiel Puig wasn't enjoying his job, you would hear the other uh, weaponized um, adjective that people deploy against blacks and Latinos, and that is ungrateful. You're ungrateful to be, appreciate. Listen, buddy, you left communist Cuba and America gave you an opportunity to make millions of dollars. Be grateful. This is, which is absolutely what Yasiel Puig is. He's the most grateful guy out there enjoying every single moment of his life in the major leagues. Um, the Charlos seem to be doing the same thing in boxing. Like, and, and, they are, and, the, and the other thing that makes the two of them similar is that they enjoy that people are upset that these guys are so happy about kicking people's asses. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, and, and you know what? The, Go ahead. The other thing about the Charlos, I mean, and you know, similar to, uh, you know, with with Puig, uh, the, the Charlos, you listen. You can look at other fighters on the Heyman roster and say that you know whether it's by choice or, or whatever that they have been the beneficiaries of some uh, some advantageous matchmaking through the years. Right, I mean, and and you and I aren't one that to to fault a fighter for taking uh, easier assignments for you know equal or or better money because that would be silly. Um, in the Charlos case, I mean, look up and down their their resumes at, at at certainly recently once they've reached the top level, the championship level. They're out here taking fights that they don't even have to take. Yes. They're taking dangerous fights. So they're not even out here kind of loafing it and, and cashing checks or, you know, whatever you want to accuse other Heyman fighters of. They are the opposite of that. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this just highlights how difficult it is. It's amazing how how uh, similar boxing fans and baseball fans are, right? Like how how difficult it is to please these people because you can give these people exactly what it is they've been complaining that they want, right? Young, aggressive fighters who aren't scared to take risks. And you give it to them, and they're mad about something else. Yeah, but you took the risk and you beat the tough guy, but why'd you have to rub it in? Well, why not? Why not? This is, one, it's, it's, it's blood sport. Don't, don't get hung up on decorum. You're watching two people punch the daylights out of each other and you're hung up on decorum somehow and again it's professional sport it's not kids sport if these guys were 10 years old we could wag fingers about sportsmanship but this is professional boxing and it's entertainment and you know what heel Jamel Charlo and heel Jamar Charlo are a lot more entertaining than humble good sportsmen uh he Jamel and Jamal Charlo 
Um, well, and, and, and people also can't decide how exactly they want fighters to act towards other fighters. Because on one hand, you'll hear people say, well, uh, back in the day, fighters had a true respect for one another. It was all about sportsmanship, and they'd uh, sit in the pub afterwards. When they, was you know, that? They, you know, I don't know when that time was. Was, was, but, that, was, uh, that, was, that, was that when, when Jack Johnson was, was uh, knocking down Stanley Ketchell and then catching him? And then standing him back up so he could knock him down again was right. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it, it the golden been, days it, of, of sportsmanship. Yeah, it, it must have been right before or right after uh, that that particular <laughs> when moment. when it, yeah. when Fritzy Zivic was just running around uh, lacing people and punching them in the balls and Harry yeah, grabbing bite, these guys like. biting people. Yeah, <laughs> right. stomping on their feet. Yeah, no, I mean sportsmanship. Or, or they say, oh, you know, back in the day, the fighters, yeah, that it was real and there was real animosity. Where are the real fights? Well, when you get two guys. Like Charlo and Lubin, who clearly don't like each other, because I don't even think they embraced after the fight. Yes, I mean they don't like each other. Why do they have to? What? what how? Do, why do you care if they like one another? It's if Lubin had knocked him out, Lubin came to the ring in like a fucking gladiator outfit and had t-shirts made and whatnot. You think that Erickson Lubin wouldn't have done the same damn thing and would have celebrated maybe even more if he had knocked out Charlo? Of course he would. Well, yeah. And remember Charlo's coach wearing that t-shirt that said, keep running your mouth. Yeah. Um, and again, it, it, it just begs the question of what these fans... And what certain members of the media, what they actually want when you have someone, again, that gives them everything they say they want right now, everything they say they miss about back, boxing back in the old days, and it's right here. It's, it's, it's real animosity. I thought you liked that. I thought you liked feuds in boxing. That's why you like Roberto Duran, because he, every fight, it wasn't sport to him. He took everything personally. And if he didn't have an actual reason to hate you going into the fight, he would make one up. Same with uh, our man Jake LaMotta. And this is what we revere about these people. Yet, when the Charlos go knock somebody out and they don't turn into sportsmen at the end and hug the guy, they gloat. That's fine. What's the problem? Remember, uh, who did Roberto Duran knock out? And they knocked the guy out and they're talking to him after the fight. And because I guess they had taken the guy to the hospital and Roberto Duran was like, well, if I'd been if I'd been in shape, he'd be in the cemetery, not the hospital. And we revere Roberto <laughs> Duran for saying this. And he's talking about killing people. <laughs> yeah. Or, I mean, all these people spend their entire paycheck on Mike Tyson roots of fight gear. Right. You know, and he was talking about killing people, raping people and whatever. I wanted to jam. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to jam his brain into his nose bone. Right. Sorry. No, to want to jam his nose bone into his brain. Yeah. Which Mob Deep repurposed into rock you in the face, stab your brain with your nose bone. That's right. Y'all alone in these streets, cousin. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> but you get the point. Uh, yeah, but when but when the char- when the Charlos don't want to tap gloves afterwards, everyone's really mad. I, I I don't know, man. Listen, the 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 Charlos may be my two favorite fighters in the world right now. Um. They are up there, as, especially as characters. Uh, they are up there. And then uh, humble good guy Errol Spence is also up there. He's the opposite end of the spectrum. And I, and I like him. Because when I say I like heels, I like heels. doesn't mean I don't like the humble good guys. It's just that the humble good guys who... Uh, the people who are the humble good guys, the, the, the finger, wagger, finger waggers in sports media want everyone to be. 
rarely get paid and rarely get the really get attention from those same get really get the same attention from those same finger waggers as the heels get. But you know, Spence is interesting because when pressed, he like it's not like he's going to give ground and suggest that he might lose to anyone. Right. You know, he's he's still very confident and very sure of himself. Yes. He's just not going to be you know particularly bombastic about it. What I love about Errol Spence is that he learned to love boxing because his father uh, used to bootleg Lennox Lewis fights at the local barbershop, and that's the best Genesis story of boxing fan <laughs> ever. That's how, he so got close. In, that's how he got yeah. into boxing. Yeah, yeah, they used to go to the local barbershop uh, because his dad was a truck driver or whatever, but the barbershop had the hookup yes. for the fights, so they would go when Lennox Lewis would fight because they, uh, I guess his, his father is of uh, Jamaican heritage Yes, uh, and doesn't appreciate these new restaurants opening up on King Street West in Toronto. <laughs> so he would bring young Errol Spence to the barbershop and uh, they, they had like the, the black box, right? The, the de-scrambler. And that, that's where he learned to love boxing. Amazing. I didn't realize uh, it was – I didn't realize that was a starting point. I knew one of his parents was Jamaican. I couldn't remember which one. But, um, yeah, and they were here in Toronto. I'm glad that they came and left before Chubby's Restaurant on King Street West <laughs> opened. <laughs> and for you guys that aren't from Toronto, so basically uh, – Somebody opened a restaurant on King Street West, or is opening a restaurant on King Street West in Toronto. It's called what's it called? Chubby's Jamaican Cuisine. I think I don't want to give them any publicity, but we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll just we'll, say we'll, that we'll talk about how stupid it is because yeah, of course, yeah. basically the premise of Chubby's Jamaican Restaurant, and they talked to the restaurateurs who opened the place. So she went on vacation to Jamaica and had food, as you do on vacation, and had local food. And she thought to herself, and she's quoted as saying this in one of these stories, wow, um, Toronto needs a Jamaican restaurant. Now, if you live in Toronto, it doesn't even take like that much effort. You live in Toronto, just get out of downtown. What Toronto has no shortage of are amazing Jamaican restaurants and like different types of Jamaican restaurants. So there are nice sit down Jamaican restaurants. I'm not even Jamaican. But I, and this is part of the point, is it like if you're just willing to go half out, like a half a step outside your immediate circle, you can find these places. Well, it, it, and it's to the point that, like, yesterday I was watching my awful Cleveland Browns, uh, and there was a visitor from Cleveland who was also at the bar watching, and she asked me, you know, what is the, what's like the Toronto cuisine that I should get? And normally people would tell them, like, oh, I don't know, go get poutine somewhere. And the first thing that came to mind was, you should probably get some Caribbean food here because that, and I, and I think that that people who eat around here would probably give you that answer unprompted. That's that is what you would get here. Yes, and th- and again, there's there's the there's the sexy Jamaican restaurants, and then there's like uh, the ones where like you have to go as soon as they open, otherwise they won't have. Or when you go, you always have to order the thing you. You order the thing you don't want because the thing you want, they're always going to be out of. So you order right. the thing. You have to outsmart the person behind the counter. Like if you want the stew chicken, don't order stew chicken. Order jerk chicken. Because when you order jerk chicken first, they'll be like, we not have that. And then you say, okay, stew chicken. They're like, hey, we have it. <laughs> but if you say, if you go on with stew chicken first, they'll be like, we not have that. <laughs> and then you got to go with the jerk chicken. <laughs> right? Even your man Floyd Mayweather, who uh, I want to say, well, the internet told me that one of his grandparents is Jamaican. 
Um, like he came to Toronto, he found his way to the real jerk. Um, yep. So it can be done, and you wouldn't find him on. Uh, uh, you wouldn't find him or Errol Spence uh, at Chubby's. <laughs> on King so I said all I had to say this if you're in Toronto looking for Jamaican food don't go to Chubby's because there are like any number they even have like drive through Jamaican restaurants uh, if you're in the right suburb like leave Chubby's yes. alone <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that Chubby's has to do with boxing but this is a public service announcement because we have uh, listeners from across the continent who might one day find themselves in Toronto well, it, it, it came up through an organic discussion about uh, Errol Spence and, and Errol stealing pay-per-views. Bootlegging which the is, fights. Listen, the only, and I, it's probably the same way for you, but I, I am not sitting here doing this show today and doing whatever I do in boxing if, my, if two of my uncles didn't have descrambling black boxes when I was a kid so well, that I could watch all those papers. And here's the other thing, and I wonder if uh, Errol Spence's dad was torn between Lennox Lewis and Mike Tyson. Because the thing was, like, you know who loves Mike Tyson? And I'm painting with a bit of a broad brush here, but, like, people, there are people who will back me up on this. Like, Jamaicans loved Mike Tyson. Loved Mike Tyson. So I'm sure a lot of people were torn when Tyson finally got around to fighting Holy, or, um, Lewis. Because I remember being, like, in some barbershop in Windsor, after uh, after Lewis beat after Holyfield, sorry, after Lewis beat Holyfield, uh, this like the the actual when they actually gave him the win the second time, November right, of nineteen ninety nine, yeah. and these Jamaican dudes were adamant that Mike Tyson could beat Lennox Lewis. And I'm trying to explain to these guys that like old Mike Tyson, like he barely beat Franz Botha this same year. He's not going to beat Lennox Lewis, but these, these Jamaican dudes are like, no, you don't know what you're talking about. Mike Tyson is still the champion. So that must have been, that. there are a lot of guys I think were torn when Lewis finally got around to fighting Tyson because they didn't know who to cheer for. Well, to, to bring this to current news uh, with regards to Errol Spence Jr., this, guy, this just came up uh, before we were set to record today. Uh, Aerospace revealed over the weekend that Golden Boy actually contacted him about facing Miguel Cotto for that uh, December date that he now has against Saddam Ali. Uh, Miguel Cotto is old enough and Aerospace is young enough that he might have been watching a, a, a descrambled Miguel Cotto pay-per-view at the barbershop. Yes, exactly. And was actually in line to fight him. Uh, this is this I find interesting for a lot of reasons. Number one, you know, did Golden Boy really think that Spence was going to take this fight, given that he is with Al Heyman? That that is a question that's in my mind. But also, number two, if they were sincere about this, I mean, does Miguel Cotto want to die in the ring? That is just about the last fight that you should want, unless that was going to be at one sixty. Yes, I, that is that is not that is not a problem that you want right now. Well, when I first started hearing about this fight, I thought that Miguel Cotto was trying to get all these guys to come up to 160. Um, but it turns out, yeah, that they were trying to make this fight. <laughs> I'm not, I shouldn't laugh at 154. And it, to your point, I don't know what Miguel Cotto thought he was going to do with Errol Spence at 154 pounds. Um, so Spence. 
did Cotto a favor because let Cotto go into his last fight as the undisputed A-side um, and will probably win. I don't know that Saddam... What's Saddam Ali's nickname again? World... world The World Kid. The World yeah. Kid. Yeah, I don't know that World Kid Ali is even in old Miguel Cotto's league, but um, Errol Spence is something else entirely. And again, we're... I think all we're waiting on is Errol Spence is another elite opponent to bring it all out of him. Um, Miguel Cotto might have been that opponent, but that would have been to Miguel Cotto's detriment. And maybe Keith Thurman is that opponent. You know, they were they were talking on the uh, on the Showtime broadcast in between fights. Can we uh, talk about how my second favorite fighter after Heel Charlos is Fake Deep Keith Thurman? Oh my god! Oh, listen, like I love philosophical Keith, Keith Thurman. Keith, Keith karaoke Keith Thurman is my favorite. Now, oh my god, that story about him getting drunk and doing karaoke and proposing to his now wife, yes, is amazing. Now, uh, philosophical Keith Thurman is more than likely going to lose to Errol Spence. I think Errol Spence puts some to sleep um but it'll be a fun ride and that will be uh whether it's a 24 7 or a showtime all access that will be a fun documentary series leading up to that fight if and when it happens uh like flute playing uh (laughs) yoga keith thurman and and also just the the way that he's talking now too, you know, like when he was on that panel, he's like, oh, you know, I, I I don't have the hunger anymore, uh, you know, like what are you talking about? Like Keith Thurman's talking like he's forty one yeah, year old he's, he's Floyd talk- Mayweather. He's know? talking like, like old fighter. Title. He's talking yeah. like old fighter. Um, Keith and- Thurman's out here like reading Archie Moore biographies, <laughs> and, and then he wants to talk like the old mongoose and now, then, like right in your twenties. You know, and the thing I do to. Uh, keep my weight down is uh, I get some steak and I chew it and I suck the juices out and I, <laughs> I spit it out. I'm also coming out with a, with a blues album uh, that teaches kids their timetable. We're just going to read multiplication problems and uh, ooh, as I do that, I'm going to sip some kraut juice, which I'm then going to spit out. And if you guys don't know what we're talking about, again, we will post uh, a link, if I can find it again, to Archie Moore's this is a real thing. An Archie Moore blues timetables album. And the album is just what I said it is. It's Archie Moore. He gets his band together and they play the blues and they use the blues as a way to teach kids their timetables. And it's an album. And I'm not making this up. This is a thing that actually exists. It's, it's one of the holy grails uh, in what I assume will be a lifelong pursuit for vinyl records, but if I can find the Archie Moore Times Tables Blues album, like in in physical form, I think I would that would complete my collection forever. <laughs> well, if anyone out there knows where to find it, let us know. Um, did you uh, did you get to watch the the PBC on Fox before the Showtime card? Or yes, did I did. Not? I watched yeah. most of it. So basically, what happened was I had three nephews here. So uh, they're my sister in law's kids. And they are five, six, and seven years old. And uh, they're all boys, three nephews. And they are like all energy. 
So they just run and run and break stuff and eat. Uh, and basically the only thing that made them stop for like 15 minutes was the boxing. They're like the Leo Santa Cruz of uh, Yes. So then when the boxing came on, they were intrigued. Who's that? And the two questions they, they wanted to know were, how old is that guy? And is insert fighter here going to cry if he loses? And they kept asking me that. And then one of the oldest one pronounced to me, he made a pronouncement. He's like, boxing is the worst sport and football is the second worst, is what he said to me. He's right. He's absolutely right about that. Yeah, well, boxing I, probably is the worst sport. Well, I asked football him. Football is probably close behind. Well, I asked him. I was like, well, what's that based on? He's like, because they're so rough. I was like, yeah, you know what? You're not wrong. <laughs> But I did get to see some of the fights in between that. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it was it was a weird comparison because that the the, the first fight, the the Eddie Ramirez knockout at the hands of Antonio Demarco was yes. a uh, an oddly early stoppage. And yes. as I said on Twitter, it's it's not something that I do. Uh, getting mad about early stoppages isn't usually something that I do because I I believe that referees should err on the side of caution. Yes. They, sh- they should always err on the side of, of stopping fights too early because the alternative uh, is far worse and potentially fatal. So it's not, you know, it- it's not my hill to die on, right. as I like to say. You know, it's not my, uh, you know, arguing that not going to Chubby's is reverse racism, <laughs> for example. You know, it's not, I- I'm definitely wait, not going to do that. Did but the, it wasn't a good stoppage. Did the ethno police get to you too, Corey? Yeah, they must have. <laughs> did you see that column? Yes, I did. That's awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so you guys, when 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 you get uh, you hear this podcast, you can also Google uh, the phrase "ethno dash police" and you can see what we're talking about. But basically, this lady in Ottawa, and I'm I'm almost ashamed to say that this it's an op-ed. It was contributed, uh, and it ran in the publication that where I work in the daytime, the Toronto star. And basically she, uh, she's upset that her daughter wants to dress up for Halloween one year as a, as an Indian princess. And she goes to school and the school says, yeah, that, that costume is offensive. Uh, go home, be something else, which is really the only reaction you should have to someone who comes to school saying I'm an Indian princess? You're not even. They're not dressed as someone specific. They're not Pocahontas or Sacagawea. They're just Indian princess. Which, by the way, I applaud the school for doing because this is an era in which teachers are telling kids to speak American. Yes, uh, in high schools as well. So kudos to that school. So the writer now just goes off on this rant about how uh, in multicultural Canada we should be encouraging people to get into other people's shoes. And my favorite line is where she says, uh, now we're telling the Jamaican boy that he can't be a ninja for Halloween. And we're telling the Latin, <laughs> the Latino girl that she can't be some French thing. And I'm like, well, first of all, there's no such thing as a Latino girl. That'd be a Latina. <laughs> <laughs> Second of all, you could absolutely be a ninja. Like Jamaican is a nationality, is an ethnic group. Uh, ninja is a job. It's an occupation. Like I was a ninja. I don't know how many years for Halloween. I was a ninja basically every year that I was enrolled in karate. 
as a ninja because I just put on the gi and a mask. Hey, I'm a ninja, right? But what I wasn't was Japanese guy, <laughs> right? So if I just put on some stupid headband, you know, with the rising sun and, I don't know, uh, sandals or something, <laughs> say, hey, what are you? Oh, I'm Japanese guy. No, that's offensive. That's ignorant. But I could dress up like a samurai or I wouldn't dress up like a sumo, but you get the point. But anyway, that's what we were talking about. Um, the ethno police got to you, Corey, is what happened. And now you're telling now you now the next Jamaican American fighter that comes to town, you're going to tell him not to go to Chubby's because the ethno police got to you. Well, I guess uh, I'm going to have to throw out my Errol Spence uh, costume that I was going to wear for uh, for Halloween. Are you Errol uh, Spence? Yeah. No, I'm 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 half Jamaican, half Texan. That's that right. is what yeah. I am for Halloween. <laughs> It was, uh, you know what? What I was wondering though is where was that referee from the Eddie Ramirez fight in that Abner Mares fight? Jeez, where was he at? Oh, oh my goodness! <laughs> How much? What? What did Andres Gutierrez's corner? What were they expecting to happen? He, I don't like, know. I it, I would not be shocked if Gutierrez does not have vision in five years. Yes. Because Wouldn't that be shocked at all. That cut went all the way from his nose to the outside of his eye socket, and he was getting blasted with every single thing that Mares threw, and not just the the punch at the end of the combination or the punch at the beginning of the combination. If Mares threw six punches, all six punches, yes, were landing right in the middle of Andres Gutierrez's face every single time. Yeah, and I don't. I don't know what he did to deserve that kind of beating. Like, did did he owe the referee money? Did he owe his cornerman money? Um, and I understand believing in your fighter, and maybe it looks different when you're in the ring. However, when a guy's lost that much blood and like just has an open cut and isn't blocking any punches, and your man Sergio Mora. Uh, made a really astute observation to the extent that I could hear the commentary over the, the, the kids peppering me with these questions. But he said, well, when you get a cut on your eye, the other thing that happens, and no one ever talks about this, this is the first time I've ever heard someone talk about this, is that the blood makes your eyelashes stick together. And then that eye, you can't really open it, and you get hit more. Um, now, I didn't know that, like, as a, just, as a guy who watches a lot of boxing and has sparred some, but I'm sure the people in the corner knew that and knew that um, Gutierrez's vision was compromised. Um, I just, I can't, I understand maybe that the referee, like maybe fans felt like they were shortchanged from the previous fight, but the, the punishment Gutierrez is taking has nothing to do with, you know, unsatisfied bloodlust from the previous fight. You, you have to let this man live his life. Um, and it becomes clear he's not going to win the fight. What are we still doing here? Well, and also, you know, in a fight that was set up as a precursor to a rematch, you know, as, as much as a, uh, and and I know, and I and I've talked to referees about this, you know, I, I uh, about whether or not they take into consideration who the fighters are and the stakes of the fight and whatnot. And, and I think they have to answer that they don't, mm-hmm. but. I think everyone heading into this card knew what the deal was, you know, and and I think referees mostly do. And when you have a situation where the the B side 
is not just not supposed to win, but is effectively supposed to lay down yes. so that the guy in the next fight can fight the guy, the A-side in this fight, you know, then then y- you should maybe pull the plug a little bit sooner. Absolutely. Um, if that's your goal, is just to showcase Martez, like, that that goal had been achieved fairly early um, in that fight. And I don't know what purpose it served anyone to allow Gutierrez to keep taking punches except that, and we've discussed before, like, there are, there is this element of unboxing fans that no matter how much punishment a guy takes, they feel like the fighters owe it to us to give them more. Um, But, you know, Gutierrez, after a while, didn't have to prove anything to me at all. One thing I I do want to point out, too, and you mentioned uh, the point that Sergio Mora had made I actually really like this commentary team. I thought that Sean Grand and uh, and Sergio Mora were very good. I like the two-man booth. I don't like it on these network cards. Uh, they've jammed together some kind of hodgepodge teams in the past with some people that were, I'm not going to name names, but people seemed a little less prepared than maybe they should have. Yeah. This team was very good. I like that observation that Mora made there. Uh, he was dead on about Avalos and his ability to take a punch in the main event. And I also liked in... I, I forget if it was in the Mares fight or in the Santa Cruz fight. I tweeted this out as well. That Grand and Mora actually had like a, fairy, a, a fairly nuanced discussion on the fly about how we talk about Mexican fighters. About how it's kind of demeaning to just suggest that they're at something we've talked about on this show and we both ri- both written yes. about about how you know the the portrayal of Mexican fighters as these uh, as a one type uh, just face forward brawler all fit into this mold kind of fighter yes. is, is 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 very demeaning and and and, and uh, I mean it's offensive to to Mexican fighters and. I would even go so far as to say that most Mexican fighters don't fight exactly like that. So I thought it was great that they brought that up. And it's funny that it was addressed on this broadcast and not on, you know, an HBO broadcast where they sell themselves on nuanced discussion, but still insist upon using (laughs) these kind of archaic uh, stereotypes of fighters and their nationalities on broadcast. Yeah, well, because as we've also discussed about... uh HBO broadcasts, so much of the commentary on those shows is about calling the fight you thought you were going to see as opposed to the fight that is unfolding in front of you. And so when, 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 when your template for calling this fight and your frame of reference reviewing this fight is that of Mexican fighters or face forward brawlers who don't think much about what they're doing and just try to overwhelm you with spirit and machismo... And that's just how you're going to call everything. Um, and it does do the viewer a huge disservice because it perpetuates, it perpetuates one, just a lot of untruths about this sport. And the, like, it's almost like these guys that are saying this don't watch boxing. And, and I don't understand why when a Mexican guy fights and is aggressive, suddenly we forget how much um, detail and skill and strategy still goes in to what they're doing. But two, um, again, so many people, they don't see what they see. They see what they think they see. But they think they see this thing because they're just told this thing. So it happens every year when, 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 
let's say there's a black quarterback coming out of the NCAA and suddenly we have these discussions about whether or not he can play in the NFL when he does the exact same things the white quarterback can do, except this guy can run too. Like look at Jamar, Jamal, uh, Lamar Jackson and all of these people who don't watch any football film who have convinced themselves that Lamar Jackson can't play in the NFL. Excuse me. Are you a scout? You, how much football do you watch? And, um, our good friend, Chris Lambert, who runs the, uh, uh, mundane festival podcast. So he he just had an episode with Mike Felder, who's a, a good friend of the Morning Jones uh, show, and uh, and but that's what Mike Felder does like for a living. Like he is, um, like if you guys want to follow like a football writer, football media, there's not a lot of guys I'd recommend, but Mike Felder and Stephen White are two of them. Yes, um, that's exactly what I'd say. Yep. yep. And, and Felder was like Felder was talking about like how much Lamar Jackson film he watches. Um, and how much Lamar Jackson will show you about what he can do um, if you will just take the time to watch the film. But if you're viewing every Lamar Jackson game through the prism of what it is you think about Lamar Jackson, this is not what you know about Lamar Jackson and not based on what Lamar Jackson has demonstrated to you, but just what you think about him because of the stuff you've heard, then you find ways to convince yourself that he can't make these NFL throws. Um, and so, and that leads me to what happened today, Corey, in this journalism class I was speaking to. So these guys are at Ryerson University here in Toronto. They're fourth-year students. So basically, it's like uh, they kind of produce it like a television show. They got there's a kid interviewing me. They got three cameras, and we talk for a while about all this stuff. Um, you know, and they'll edit it from among the three cameras, and there we go. Uh, <laughs> so it wasn't a sorry. It was like a sports media class. So they were like. People there that want to be TV people in front of or behind the camera. There were people there that want to be sports writers, etc. There's, there's a, a diversity of career interests in this class. Um, but the class had been like they had done some research on me, right? And the professor's like, "Oh, they asked for you specifically." Now I don't I don't know if I believe that because if they're going to ask for someone specific from the Toronto, like it's not going to be me. It's going to be one of the people that makes money, but. <laughs> Whatever, I wind up in the class. And uh, it gets to this Q&A session in the class. And it, but the thing is, but they've been prepared for me. because like, So they were asking me about this podcast, all of this stuff. And uh, one guy, he's like a big boxing MMA fan. And, and the thing about when you, it's, when you visit a, a, a journalism school class, you're going to get questions. When you visit a sports media class you're gonna get takes you're gonna get the takes might be disguised as questions but they're takes right so the kid's like well uh he he's like you have pacquiao losing to to jeff horn you have the controversy with uh uh canelo and triple g you had the mayweather mcgregor fight you know the ufc is still surging um, so what is boxing going to do to counteract the fact that the UFC is surging? So in return to his question, I posed a bunch of questions. Who is the most, mar- like, I was like, well, who's the most marketable UFC fighter? Well, Ronda Rousey, don't talk to me about Ronda Rousey. She hasn't fought and she's not going to fight again or she probably won't. Who's the most marketable UFC fighter? Michael Bisping. No, don't talk to me about Michael Bisping because he's not a star. He's UFC famous, but he's not a star. Um, who are the most marketable UFC fighters? Conor McGregor. Okay, now what's the last thing you saw Conor McGregor do? 
He was boxing against Floyd Mayweather. Okay, how much money did he make for that fight? 25, no, he didn't make 25 million. He was guaranteed 30 million. He might have gotten more. Um, and what did he do to get this money? Did he get it from the UFC or did he go outside the UFC? We went outside the UFC. Yeah, exactly. He had to go call a boxer to make this money. Now, and I asked him if he heard about Anthony Joshua's fight coming up with, maybe with Kubrat Pulev, if Pulev is, is still healthy. Uh, it's, it's confirmed that it's Carlos Takam now. Just to, Wow, uh, okay. Know, people already know this by the time they listen to this. But well, yeah, here's the Carlos thing. But they sold 70,000 tickets for Anthony Joshua versus Kubrat Pulev, which is to say Anthony Joshua sold 70,000 tickets himself. Yes. Is there any person in the UFC who can sell 70,000 tickets himself? No, there's not. So now, where are you getting this evidence from that boxing is on the decline and that the UFC is surging? Look at the UFC's pay-per-view numbers. They've been completely lackluster except for the John Jones fight, and John Jones is on drug suspension. So they don't have anyone who can put up numbers right now except they had to go take George St. Pierre out of mothballs. They don't know if he's going to win this fight in, uh, next month. So where is this evidence? The evidence doesn't exist. And any, any objective look at the data will tell you that boxing is still doing maybe not bigger numbers because the UFC has more events, but just that the UFC is not surging and that boxing is not disappearing. Boxing, again, Anthony Joshua, between two fights this year, will have sold 160,000 tickets. Yes, yeah. And so I asked him, I was like, and this is what I told the guy. I was like, look, you want to be a journalist... Now, there's going to be a lot of pressure on you to just write stories based on what you've heard instead of what you know or what you can research and demonstrate. Um, and, you know, and there's all kinds of hackery that goes on in this business and people do it. But, like, if you want to be smart, you're going to go look at what the facts tell you. And when in doubt, you got to go with the facts, not with just what you heard. Um, but this is how boxing gets portrayed. And the thing is, and I, and I asked him, well, what evidence is there? that the UFC is surging at boxing's expense and that boxing is declining. What evidence is there for that? Except that people just keep saying it. But above and beyond what people are saying, what is being demonstrated uh, by the numbers, by the actual trends? Well, and, and, and the irony, uh, and, and not to delve too much into, uh, you know, kind of like a... Uh, an instructional podcast for for future <laughs> boxing journalists or sports journalists or whatever, but instructions irony, are overrated anyway. Man. Right? Yeah. Just the, go kiss the, somebody's the, ass and then yeah, you'll be fine. That's, what, you'll, that's what actually that's the other thing I told the kids in the class today. What's your best career advice for getting better? I'm like, man, just go manage up, find someone above you, attach yourself to them, and play politics. There you go. Exactly. That'll, that'll get you further than skills will. It's not oh, like God. boxing. You won't get knocked out if you suck. You just. <laughs> <laughs> but you know but but the as i was uh, about to say like the, the irony you know in in that student's case is that if you if you want to be the hot take guy well what's the, what's the you know the the essence of 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 a hot take at its core is to, is to say something that's different right but yes. if if you actually want to be the guy that's saying something different in sports normally what you actually have to do then is Look at the facts. Yes. And actually tell the truth. Yes. You know, in the, in the case, like, you and I, when we get on here and talk about uh, about this very topic, let's say, about how, you know, the UFC isn't surging and boxing is doing quite all right, that we're probably in the minority 
of people Absolutely that are, are actually saying that, even though it is demonstrably true. Because so people... in, in in so in actuality, like we're the edgy ones. Yes, we're the guys who are saying stuff that's different, right? Because we're not what's what you hear on TSN. Even though what we're saying is is absolutely true, yeah. Well, well, yeah. And if if facts were able to penetrate this discussion in a meaningful way, then I wouldn't have to keep answering the same question about whether or not boxing is dead, about whether or not the UFC is taking over market share. Like we discuss this all the time. Like the UFC's audience is shrinking. The UFC, the 18 year old that watched the UFC 12 years ago is a 30 year old that watches the UFC now, but there's not a new 18 year old coming in to watch the UFC. It's their viewing audience has gotten one year older every year over the past 10 years. And their, their biggest star, Conor McGregor, who we're talking about right now, as we found out earlier on today, well, they've talked about boxing Polly Malinaji next. <laughs> so what do you think is best for business? Is it for him to go back into the surging land of the octagon or is it for him to box some more? Well, exactly. And this is the point I made here and the point I made on Jonah Carey's podcast. Um, if the UFC was this land of milk and honey and was still spitting off money, spinning off money, all these UFC guys wouldn't be looking for boxing licenses to go find a boxer to fight to make money. Um, but again, this is just what people are told. And so this is what people think. And then this is what, this is what people see when they look at these two sports, whether or not this is actually what's happening. This is what they see. Just like when you, you, you prime the audience to, to think of Mexican boxers as the opposite of cerebral, um, just as, Face forward brawlers who, again, who just overwhelm you with toughness. Um, that's what you're going to look for, and that's what you're going to see because that's how you've been primed. Uh, and it doesn't matter what actually happens in front of you. So these guys will look at Finito Lopez and say, Oh, yeah, that's a brawler. That's a tough Mexican brawler, Finito Lopez. Look at him. Just as I guess. <laughs> Listen, if if that were the case, I mean, Finito Lopez is one of the boxers that. Uh, that even Floyd Mayweather kind of gives ground to, who says, yes, I, I watch Finito Lopez tapes, you know, and, and if Floyd is going to say that, it should tell you something about him uh, and what his boxing abilities actually are. Yes. Um, we, I mean, we're almost an hour into this, so I think we're going to have to pass on talking about Rigo and Lomachenko. We got to talk about Uncle Rigo next week, man. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we got to talk about Uncle Rigo next week. Oh, we do have some time because that fight isn't until December 9th, so uh, we're not running out of time or anything. But Uncle Rigo in, in the gym doing leg presses. Of course. <laughs> to of gain course. weight. In, in, his, in, his, in his boxing trunks. <laughs> in his long, and, and the long I'm pants. training for a boxing match, so I'm going to wear my trunks. <laughs> yes. That makes sense. Um, but we should give the people some uh, some YouTube picks of the week. Uh, I'm gonna go first, and, okay. and I'm going to uh, I'm gonna make a pick based on the names that were added to the International Boxing Hall of Fame ballot that was just sent out. So okay. mine just arrived a couple days after everybody's because, of course, I'm located in Canada, so uh, mail gets here a little bit slower than my uh, colleagues in LA or in uh, in New York. Uh, but some new names were added to the ballot. Uh, those being Eric Morales. Uh, Vitaly Klitschko, Ricky Hatton, and perhaps my all-time favorite boxer, or maybe one of my three favorite boxers ever. He is the namesake 
of my cat, Winky Wright, <laughs> was also added to the list. So I'm going to add a Winky Wright fight to our playlist for the first time. Uh, I am going to go ahead and add Winky Wright's victory over Felix Trinidad yes. from 2005, which, which I... Which really is the last great Winky Wright performance, unless you count the Jermaine Taylor fight, which he should have won, but was not given the decision for, where yes. he should have been middleweight champion as well, which would have only bolstered his Hall of Fame resume, and probably, if he officially gets that fight, would have been, a, a, no doubt, a first ballot Hall of Famer, although I think he should be this time around as well. We'll get to that in another episode as well, but... The Felix Trinidad fight, I think, is the, the quintessential Winky Wright performance. He went into that fight and told everyone this fight is going to be easy. Yes. And basically, just with his jab, yes. took away the Trinidad left hook in the way that nobody had before, uh, with the exception of Bernard Hopkins. So uh, I think you should go and watch the Felix Trinidad fight from 2005. We're going to add it to the playlist. But in general, just go back and watch Winky Wright fights. And, uh, and how a guy was just able to use sound defense and a jab to, uh, again, another reason why you can't just use, you know, stereotypes in boxing about what type of fighter a guy is. Winky was someone who was able to be aggressive and walk guys down while at the same time being a smart boxer and not being boring. So he's a, a truly unique fighter in boxing history, and he's going to get my vote as a first ballot Hall of Famer for this coming year. First ballot, bro? No one gets a unanimous decision on the first ballot. What? Earn it, <laughs> man. Earn well, it, Ray Robinson. Listen, Wait your time, I, kid. I, I unfortunately <laughs> think that people are going to vote for Ricky Hatton over Winky Wright. Jeez. I, I, because I think that Morales and Klitschko get in no matter what. Everyone's going to vote for, for them. Um... And I think they're going to vote for Ricky Hatton instead of Winky just because he was more popular. And, and there are a lot of people with votes that maybe shouldn't have votes. Well, yeah, well, yeah. There's only one Ricky Hatton. There's um, only one Ricky Hatton. I remember that. Okay, the, the, the Trinidad, um, Trinidad right fight. I remember watching that. Uh, <laughs> there, was, there was a sports bar across the street from the star. And they used to show all the fights. I don't know if they show them all now but the old owners they showed all the fights and uh i remember being there watching that fight and there was a guy um there was a guy in a tito trinidad headband (laughs) and so we're talking before the fight and he's like yeah i'm so happy man tito's gonna tito's gonna kill winky right and I tried to explain to him. I was like, he's he's not like he's gonna get outboxed. No, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, no, actually, this no, I do. He's gonna get outboxed. <laughs> if if Uncle Bernard Hopkins outboxed him, uh, Winky Wright's gonna outbox him. And then the fight started, and Felix Trinidad did not win. Not a single ten second span of that fight. <laughs> Not not at all. It was about the most lopsided high level fight you're gonna see without without it being like a brutal fight, like without it turning into Cal Zaggy versus Joe Lacey. Yeah. But man, yikes. So uh 
my pick of the week, and I can't remember, I picked this a couple weeks ago, we just never got around to recording, I can't remember what it was that made me want to pick this, um, but this one, uh, well, here we go, we have a face-forward, unskilled, crude Mexican brawler who somehow won 88 fights in a row. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this fight uh, is from November the 21st. So we're coming up on the anniversary of 1987. So we're coming up on the 30th anniversary. And this is Julio Cesar Chavez and Edwin El Chapo Rosario uh, in Las Vegas. Lightweight title fight. Um, so this is where you kind of get to see Julio Cesar Chavez like at his best. You know what it made me think about it was because Max Kellerman kept talking about this fight during Canelo Triple G um, and wondering whether Triple G was going to do to Canelo what Julio Cesar Chavez did to El Chapo. Um, right. The thing about this fight now, so El Chapo, uh, Rosario, he, <laughs> when you watch the broadcast of this fight, I'm going to post the full broadcast. Because you want to watch the whole broadcast. Because El Chapo, basically, he'd had trouble making weight. And then they show him, uh, they go to his camp. And the thing that he eats between the weigh-in and the fight is, like, baby pigeon soup. And, like, (laughs) (laughs) this baby, the baby pigeon soup is what makes you strong, right? (laughs) And it's so weird to see how they talked about weight loss and weight gain back then. Because they weigh in at 135. And then he comes to the ring at 142, and the, and the the broadcast crew is amazed. They're like, he gained seven pounds after the weigh-in. <laughs> Their minds are blown, right? And these days, people gain like even the little guys gain like 12, 12 15 pounds. Your man Lomachenko gains like fourteen pounds. Yeah, some guys sorry, sixteen like, pounds. He comes to the ring at one forty six after weighing in at one thirty. His his son gains like thirty right <laughs> before he gets to the ring. But yeah. as Chapo Rosario gains seven pounds. Drinking uh, baby pigeon soup. And these guys, their minds were blown. They couldn't believe this. And then also, like, the pre-fight features are, like, the crudest, most condescending, patronizing, crudely sketched out caricatures of Mexican life and Puerto (laughs) Rican life, which I guess was, like, a hard-hitting, beyond-the-lines sports journalism back then but it's like the hbo guy saying the mexican people are a proud people they enjoy soccer and boxing and tacos it's like this kind of shit that you would never get on the air now unless you're writing about the ethno police or some shit right, but, right. <laughs> there it was and it's a fun it's a well i'm not it's a, it's an entertaining fight it wasn't fun if you were el chapo but it's again one of these uh Entertaining one-sided fights because Chavez wins almost every round, but Rosario gives him a lot to think about until he just Chavez winds up overwhelming him with smart pressure, not crude Mexican, not crude quote unquote Mexican pressure, but smart Mexican pressure. Yeah, and, and that's kind of that's the best example of aggressive Chavez Sr. as well. And, and it's the fight that I often hear uh, like boxing experts and boxing trainers use. If they're trying to teach a fighter how to apply pressure, yes. they'll show them the tape of, of Chavez Rosario. So it is, it is very much a, a textbook display 
of of pressure fighting that you know if if you're watching this and and you yourself fight or you want to get into fighting that's definitely one that you should have on the playlist and yes. watch from time to time if you want to see left hooks to the body oh yeah and it it does not matter how how much baby pigeon soup you eat <laughs> when Chavez starts throwing left hooks to your body you're gonna slow down and there's nothing you can do about it and you know you know what was on the undercard of this fight the co-main event I forget who was. Julian the Hawk Jackson against Inchul Beck. Oh, right. Where the yes. Hawk knocks Inchul Beck into, next, into the next zip code. Yes. And wins that's the right. world title. That's right. Yes. Yeah, so, because Jackson and Jackson and Chavez were, were often on cards together at that point, right? Yeah. They were, yeah, right. Okay, well, I mean, uh, next time that uh, we feel like we're going to be sick and we're going to miss a week and we both know to uh, eat. Just drink some baby pigeon broth. <laughs> baby pigeon soup, man. It'll get you right. That'll clear out all the phlegm, and we'll be we'll be back on the air. We, we've learned a lot this week. Exactly. How to how to cure yourself? How to become a journalist? Uh, how to throw a left hook to the body? Perfect. Becoming a journalist is easy, man. Just like I said, just kiss somebody's ass. It, it'll get you so much further than like hard work. Oh yeah, it's way easier than, than just, getting punched in the face. Yeah. Identify somebody who's powerful in your organization. Go to beer with the person. And shit will start happening for you. <laughs> there you go, guys. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in uh, for another edition of the Mandatory Challengers. As always, you can find us on iTunes, where uh, perhaps you found us right now. You can subscribe to us on there. We are also on Stitcher. Uh, we are making our way onto Spotify as well. Finally, uh, we're on we're on SoundCloud. We are uh, basically everywhere that podcasts are found. So thank you once again for tuning in, Morgan. Go ahead and hit him with a bell. Ding ding. <laughs>